This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. It's our Doctor in the House segment today with my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist. How are you, George? I'm very good. Looking forward to another exciting program on a Friday. So this one is um, a hotly debated one, Absolutely. I think. Now, it's, um, I guess, an open secret, you could say, that the tobacco industry um, has a strong lobbying role and they do lobby governments on public health policies linked to tobacco control. No longer conspiracy. Uh, (laughs) Open secret, really. (laughs) I guess, um, you know, we will have the evidence um, to to back up this claim um, during our discussion today. And uh, we want to look at just how much of an influence do they really have. Mm -hmm. And so we will be discussing the Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance's fourth Asian Tobacco Industry Interference Index, uh, which was launched in November last year. And this index measures the extent to which 19 Asian countries are protecting their health policies from tobacco industry interference. So joining us today, George, is Dr. Mary Asunta, Senior Policy Advisor with the Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance. And um, I uh, hope she'll be able to share more about the index and what can be done to stop any interference or uh, meddling from the tobacco industry. Dr. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Shoik. And uh, hello, Dr. George. Very pleased to join you all today. Um, Dr. Mary, could you start by um, sharing with our listeners what the Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance is and how do you view your role uh, within the tobacco control movement in the region? The Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance, or SIATCA, as we are known, has been functioning for more than 20 years now, and we work across uh, the uh, 10 ASEAN countries. So we're basically a civil society organization and a regional alliance that partners with uh, other um, NGOs, uh, with uh, governments, and also with uh, WHO to strengthen and advance uh, tobacco control. And uh, we provide technical assistance, we prepare policy briefs, uh, conduct capacity building workshops, and also conduct our own campaigns uh, to advance tobacco control uh, in the region. Mm-hmm. Providing that um, check and balance, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes, it is, uh, it's, uh, you know, smoking and tobacco use is like the number one preventable uh, cause of uh, d- disease and death in the world and certainly in the region. So therefore, this kind of work, I think, uh, is, is important. And Dr. Mary, if we can look at the industry then, how would you describe the landscape of the tobacco industry within this region that you're working in? Uh, Well, the transnational uh, tobacco companies have a strong presence uh, in the region and they are present uh, across practically all of the uh, ASEAN countries and uh, with exception of Brunei and certainly across the other um, Asian countries as well. Uh, And within the ASEAN region itself, Uh, There are certain targets like Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Vietnam uh, are targeted and elsewhere in Asia like uh, Bangladesh, uh, India, Pakistan, they are actually targeted by the industry because these are countries with large populations and therefore they have a large uh, youth base Mm. and this presents uh, an exploitable market. uh, In what way are they targeted? Because tobacco is an addictive product, you hook them young you get lifelong customers. 
and uh, that's why it is uh, hard to quit smoking because it's uh, it's uh, it's very addictive, uh, and hence uh, and usually children um, uh, start smoking or those who start smoking, eighty uh, percent of them do so uh, when they are you know below the age of nineteen. So the bulk of smokers start when they are teenagers or children when they don't know the hazards, and once hooked then they become uh, long-term customers because it's really quite difficult to, to quit. And are there lots of evidence the industries are targeting the youth in these specific regions or countries that you mentioned? Yes, certainly uh, all of this is uh, pretty well documented and there are many reports uh, available uh, on uh, the targeting uh, being done in, in the past, you know, activities uh, that were organised, you know, and, and the targeting is is across uh, many levels. Uh, if you look at the product itself, in the past, you know, um, the cigarette uh, packs used to be uh, designed and uh, use of colours to, to attract the, the young. And then, of course, there were activities in Malaysia many years ago. There were concerts, music concerts uh, that were sponsored by tobacco companies. Uh, and, and now that uh, we go into a new type of uh, pro- uh, tobacco products that are available, the targeting is online. By using social media, so influencers are being uh, employed uh, to actually promote uh, these products. So when you look at the design, you look at the method of our promotion and the media, clearly you can see that uh, youth is the target. Mm. So that's sort of the strategies employed in terms of marketing and sales. Of course, the other aspect of what the industry does is um, how it, um, you know, gains a foothold or, or tries to gain a foothold in policy making. So let's talk about the index that was released by the Alliance in November last year, supposed to look at the level of tobacco industry interference. Um, perhaps first uh, explain the rationale behind coming up with this index. How was it carried out? The uh, Tobacco Industry Interference Index it, it serves as a report card uh, really uh, when you look at the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, you know, which is uh, a health treaty that Malaysia and 183 other countries are now parties to, uh, they have, uh, uh, by becoming parties, by ratifying this treaty, uh, they have agreed to implement uh, this uh, treaty. And uh, the treaty has got uh, many uh, sub-clauses uh, in them, and one of the clauses which is uh, obligatory is called Article 5.3. Mm-hmm. And Article 5.3 uh, is about how governments can protect their public health policies uh, from tobacco industry interference. Uh, and, uh, and, and within this Article 5.3, there are guidelines uh, as to how to actually implement uh, measures, very clear measures that mm. uh, governments can take to, to protect uh, their, their health policies. Mm. So uh, we looked at uh, how governments are doing this. And that's because uh, once every two years, uh, uh, governments or parties to the FCTC have to submit a report on how well they are implementing the treaty. And uh, many governments across the globe, uh, including Malaysia, have actually um, cited tobacco industry interference as their biggest challenge oh. to implementing the treaty. So you've got Article 5.3, which uh, empowers governments to protect themselves and their policy. And then you've got, on the other hand, governments saying that, uh, you know, that interference, industry interference is their biggest challenge. So this uh, means that 
this particular component of the treaty is not being uh, properly implemented. And yeah. that's why we decided to look at how well governments are actually implementing this particular um, article. Mm-hmm. And that's the index. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mary, can you give us some examples of what's in the guideline uh, that actually has been benchmarked against the kind of like, a, you know, the report card, really? Yes. Uh, there are several components uh, in it that are over 30 sub-recommendations. Uh, uh, if I were to summarize them, you can uh, group them into uh, several categories. So one category is how does the industry interfere in actual policy making? In other words, what kind of recommendations that the industry itself makes to the government or how it undermines activities and policies that the government would try to put in place. And there are several ways that it does to en- undermine that and, and there's also uh, corporate social responsibility activities, which uh, this particular um, guideline says that governments must denormalize uh, tobacco-rated CSR activities. Mm-hmm. In fact, they should be banned. Uh, however, you know, have governments actually denormalized um, them? And then there are also um, other recommendations like um, what kind of benefits uh, did the the FCTC says not to give benefits to the tobacco industry. So we'll have to look at what kind of benefits are actually then given uh, to the industry. Uh, and then looking at situations of conflict of interest mm. um, and then looking at transparency when the government relates with the industry, is it doing it in a transparent manner? And then also looking at uh, how what specific measures the governments can do then to protect their policies. You know, earlier on you mentioned that um, the governments, also, a lot of them cited that the challenge they face is the, um, you know, how to avoid that interference. I find it difficult to believe the government holds the power, but yet they cited challenges of an industry interfering with their um, role as a governing body. How is that the case? Uh, it actually uh, uh, happens slowly and it becomes very subtle. But then, you know, it's um, uh, that's why we do this index so that we can identify specific areas mm. in which uh, this is being done. So uh, if you were to take the case of uh, Malaysia, for example, Malaysia has not increased uh, tobacco tax since uh, 2016. So that's, you know, about seven years so uh, increasing t- uh, taxes on tobacco is one of the um, measures. It's a demand reduction measure in the treaty uh, to reduce tobacco use. You put up the taxes, which will result in uh, you know a more expensive tobacco products, which then serves as you know discouraging uh, purchase and, and consumption. But if the taxes don't go up, then the prices uh, don't go up. So mm-hmm. but Malaysia has not increased uh, taxes. So why didn't Malaysia increase taxes would be the question to ask. And the answer is that uh, on an annual basis, you will read uh, news reports of how tax increases will uh, exacerbate or worsen uh, smuggling. Uh, you know, that there was even a bus that was going around Kuala Lumpur, uh, you know, saying that, uh, you know, that, that they are looking at uh, a smuggling of, of of uh, tobacco products, um, and uh, so and if smuggling increases, this would deprive the the government of uh, important revenue. So a scare tactic is is used then to discourage the the government from increasing taxes. Mm. I talked about CSR activities. So CSR activities 
you know, charity from the industry is supposed to be banned. But Malaysia, you know, uh, you, you will read that there are instances of uh, tobacco-related um, charity. And in fact, government officials are not supposed to endorse these activities, but you do find that they do. Are they so reported? Uh, are there sorry, Doctor yes. Mary? Are there reported or recorded instances of um, these CSR activities being accepted by the government? Yes, they are actually uh, well reported because uh, the reason why uh, the tobacco industry does charity is because it's reframing itself, you know, as a responsible and caring um, industry. So the, the reality is that this is an industry that is unique because it sells a product, um, you know, that uh, results in diseases and uh, kills 27,000 people in Malaysia annually. Mm. There is a treaty to reduce the use of, of a product by this industry. And then this industry does charity, you know, so it, it needs to reframe uh, it, itself uh, and build up its uh, its image. And that's the reason that it does charity. So they pretend to be the good guys. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a form of whitewashing, uh-huh. uh, the harm uh, that is being done. Well described. We'll go for a quick break and come back to continue the discussion about the influence of the tobacco industry. My co-host, Dr. George Lee, in the studio with me and joining us online, Dr. Mary Asunta, Senior Policy Advisor with the Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. It's our Doctor in the House segment today with my co-host, consultant urologist, Dr. George Lee. And today we're speaking to Dr. Mary Asunta, Senior Policy Advisor with the Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance or SIATCA. And we are discussing the influence of the tobacco industry and what is its impact on public health policies in Asia. This is coming off the back of an index that was released by SIATCA in November last year. It's the fourth Asian Tobacco Industry Interference Index. And uh, it's benchmarked against the um, Article 5.3 in the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, a treaty that Malaysia has um, ratified, right? Uh, Am I right, Dr. Mary? That's correct. Malaysia ratified the treaty in 2005. So we are bound to the uh, convention uh, and the guidelines that are laid out to uh, ensure uh, tighter tobacco control. So let's look at this index then um, broadly. Uh, What did the results show about the influence of um, the industry in Asia and how did Malaysia do? So Malaysia has not been uh, faring very well uh, in this uh, <laughs> in implementing Article uh, 5.3. In fact, uh, unfortunately, uh, Malaysia has been deteriorating mm. in the scores um, over the years. And um, I've cited the example that there's been uh, no tax increase due to industry um, interference uh, in scaring the government off. Um, and uh, there's also uh, the case of... Um, uh, nicotine uh, was uh, a registered uh, poison in the Poison Act of 1952. And uh, nicotine that is a poison in 1952 remains a poison till today. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, it was delisted from the uh, Poison Act. Uh, a tobacco company had actually recommended the delisting or cited this as a problem. And this was done a few years ago when they made a statement that this is a problem um, for them. Uh, and then there's also been mushrooming of uh, new voices 
uh, and new groups uh, in Malaysia who have been proposing uh, tobacco industry narratives, uh, but they don't declare uh, who has funded them to, you know, do their work or, you know, to produce these reports. And uh, the positions that they have taken are pro, pro-industry positions. So they come across as civil society groups, uh, you know, genuine, uh, genuinely representing uh, consumers or genuinely representing uh, whoever. But um, the, the point is, uh, when you look at what is the message that they are conveying or what are they asking the, the, the government to do, then you will be able to tell that they have a very specific pro-industry, um, what you call it, uh, position. And the other thing that Malaysia hasn't done uh, for, for some time now is to actually have uh, a code of conduct or a guidance uh, that will guide government officials when interacting uh, with the tobacco industry. This is one of the recommendations uh, in Article 5.3 of the uh, FCTC. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mary, I am surprised you haven't mentioned you know, the um, scrapping of a Generation Endgame. Do you think in any way that was influenced by the tobacco industry? Well, thank you for this important question. And the answer is yes. If you look at who benefits uh, from the scrapping of it, uh, I think one single beneficiary will be the tobacco industry. So... Um, if you look at progress of tobacco control in, in Malaysia over the years, uh, the decline, the, the decline in tobacco use has been very, it's been too slow, it's been glacial, um, and uh, it is not fast enough. If you look at the um, the outcome and the uh, the cost to society, the cost to families, is 27,000 deaths a year, and many, many thousands are suffering uh, you know, from the various uh, diseases caused uh, uh, by tobacco use. And uh, however, if you look at the uh, decline in smoking prevalence, it's been very slow. Uh, and so you need a long-term solution uh, for this. And a long-term solution would be right now, uh, you know, it is acceptable that um, young people shouldn't smoke. And so our legislation would ban sales. Uh, you know, to uh, to those below the age of uh, of, of eighteen, but uh, the the point is, how come suddenly you know yesterday you are you know seventeen and three quarters, and today you become eighteen, and then you are free to go and uh, buy tobacco? Doesn't make sense. So when you actually um, you know have a vision of slowly phasing out tobacco use, because uh, those deaths and diseases and and the people who are sick that are mentioned. Uh, all of this is preventable. Uh, and hence, you know, uh, a generational endgame, it's actually a long-term vision to actually have a tobacco-free uh, generation in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is for a healthier society. And so unfortunately, uh, that uh, didn't happen. Now, Dr. Mary, we sometimes need numbers, right, to shock our system a little bit. So when it comes to ranking, Malaysia's ranking, uh, where do we sit on the index considering we've been deteriorating and how do we compare with the other countries that were studied? Drum rollings. Oh, no. <laughs> this is and a bad then... report card. <laughs> so Malaysia, uh, as I mentioned, has really uh, not been doing well. So there are 19 countries in Asia and Malaysia is uh, third from the bottom. And what? so that's a position of number 17 out of 19 uh, countries. Uh, this is not an enviable position for Malaysia at all. Who are the last two? <laughs> so the last two, uh, 
the good question you asked. The last is uh, Japan, uh, oh. and that's because the the Japanese government owns uh, about thirty three percent. Um, of their main uh, tobacco company, so there's vested interest in there. Mm-hmm. And Indonesia is uh, number eighteen, which is second last. And uh, Indonesia is a non-party uh, to the FCTC, mm-hmm. and uh, they have very weak uh, legislation in in tobacco control. Mm-hmm. So Malaysia should, uh, because we have got many tobacco control, uh, you know, programs, and we have been doing tobacco control for a long time. We should be aiming. To actually achieve the top country, which is Brunei, or even uh, number two, you know, ranking uh, Singapore, in the world, is um, actually it's Mongolia, <laughs> followed oh. by, uh, by 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 Nepal. So we should be aiming to to uh, emulate those countries that are doing well. So we shouldn't be languishing at the bottom, which is what Malaysia seems to be racing to the to the mm-hmm. bottom on this particular mm-hmm. issue. Sure, I'm interested to find out from Dr. Mary. Why are Brunei's and Mongolia doing so well? Uh, I think first of all, I think there has to be a political commitment to want to reduce tobacco use. It's not just having legislation and having uh, campaigns and programs. In Brunei, uh, to be fair to the rest of the countries, Brunei does not have a tobacco industry as such. It's a very small country of less than five hundred thousand people, and uh, you know they and they but they have a very strong uh, tobacco control policy. Uh, and they intend to really, you know, bring the levels uh, down. And uh, so they have a, a code of conduct, uh, which they put in place, issued by the Prime Minister's office, uh, which implements Article 5.3. Uh, and in the case of um, Mongolia, again, you know, they have put in place very uh, strong um, measures. Uh, and these measures would be, you know, 100% smoke-free public places. You know, it will be very prominent pictorial warnings on cigarette packs tax increases, it's all the things that are mentioned uh, in the FCTC. Mm-hmm. So Malaysia has implemented the FCTC in a partial manner. I think mm-hmm. that, uh, that's why we find ourselves in this situation. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the other thing I'm a bit surprised is that you mentioned there were several countries targeted by the industry, for example, Vietnam and Bangladesh, and we fare worse than them. Why? Uh, well, you know... Uh, uh, I have to qualify that the index is based on publicly available information. Mm-hmm. So the, the evidence, you know, is, is what has been declared uh, and is therefore uh, available in the public domain. And there are several, and there are 20 questions, you know, that the index looks at. So we have to look at how each question was uh, was answered. So in some questions, Malaysia fared poorly and these countries um, fared uh, better. Mm-hmm. So you will have to, 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 to look at that across the board. So, for example, um, in uh, when it comes to uh, policy, uh, intervening in, in policy. So when you, when you look at uh, countries like Nepal, uh, Mongolia, uh, Bangladesh, you know, they, they do not allow the tobacco industry, uh, you know, to actually participate you know, in policy development or have a seat mm-hmm. uh, in, in policy making. Whereas in Malaysia, if you if you notice that we have the Kanaf Board, for example, uh, the the Kanaf Board, which is a government body, you know, has got the tobacco industry in the board of the Kanaf Board. In mm. other words, the industry gets a seat in policy making. What does the Kanaf Board um, look at? What is their sort of scope? Uh, the the Kanaf uh, it's called the Kanaf and Tobacco Board. 
prior to 2009, it was known as the tobacco uh, board, the uh, Lembaga Tembakau, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, Malaysia. So the, the Malaysian the, the Malaysian National uh, Tobacco Board, and and then there is a law, and and there was a very good government uh, policy to actually uh, phase out tobacco cultivation. So the board was responsible for looking after tobacco farmers, and and tobacco cultivation is is actually commercially non viable. Mm-hmm. It has got it's a highly subsidized uh, crop, and so it wasn't viable anymore. So the the policy was to shift away from tobacco, which, by the way, is Article 17 of the FCTC, to find an alternate livelihood. So the tobacco board got uh, changed to now call the Kanaf and, and Tobacco Board, which and, and so Malaysia transitioned and uh, and shifted the farmers to actually now, uh, you know, grow Kanaf, and, and that's uh, doing really well. So the function of the Kanaf board is to support um, the farmers to actually, uh, you know, grow uh, kanaf and to assist them to in the marketing of it. Oh. But the tobacco component has remained uh, somehow in 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 this board, and and that's how the industry, you know, is functioning in it. And the other function of this board is also they're responsible for licensing of retailers, and that has taken a very long time to actually happen. Mm-hmm. If you look at Thailand, Thailand, Singapore. Uh, even uh, what you call it, Brunei, uh, they've got to uh, retailers who want to sell cigarettes have to be licensed, and the license fee is really high for Brunei, you know, mm. which is prohibited. So it discourages actually um, selling to. Mm. I see. Um, I want to come back to the code of conduct that you mentioned, Dr. Mary. Um, a code is um, not a legally binding. Um, document, how effective would it really be in sort of uh, governing interactions uh, between the government and the industry? So I first want to say that uh, when uh, when a country ratifies a treaty, they are obligated to implement um, all components uh, of, of that treaty. And Article 5.3 is obligatory. It's, it's an obligatory clause. How they um, implement it there are guidelines that were developed. And so what Malaysia can do, Malaysia has a choice. For that matter, all countries have a choice as to how they want to implement this. Mm-hmm. They can either do it by uh, putting it into their legislation, which is which is what Botswana um, and Uganda have done. They've incorporated Article 5.3 into their Tobacco Control Act. Or you can do it administratively which is what many other countries have done. The Philippines, for example, has got a circular, it's called a Joint Memorandum Circular, between the Civil Service Commission and the Department of Health, um, and uh, and it provides guidance as to how uh, government officials should be interacting with the tobacco industry. So it's administrative, it's not part of their legislation. But because it is by the uh, Civil Service Commission, uh, which operates on an ombudsman system, there will be penalties, uh, you know, if they don't follow. All right. So in a way, it's obligatory, but it's up to the government how they implement it, either by law or by a bit of a nudge rather than, uh, you know, implementation in the law. That's correct. And I think this flexibility is important, uh, that the governments have the flexibility because they have to decide what works for them. Mm. But... When something is obligatory within an international treaty, right, Dr. Mary, 
and then you see countries still not um, uh, not following. Not following. It. Is it punishable? Where someone can someone take the country to to task? Do you think um, the WHO needs to play a stronger role in mandating um, countries' actions on this? Uh, I think that's a really, really uh, spot-on question. Um, first of all, the uh, implementation of the um, FCTC, you know, all components with regards to, you know, uh, the, the FCTC, the negotiations and its implementation is now facilitated or rather coordinated by a body called the, um, the Convention Secretariat. And the parties meet once every two years uh, through a process called the Conference of the Parties, which then make decisions, you know, on, on what needs to be done next. So the, 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 the body responsible for facilitating all of this is the Convention Secretariat, which is separate from the WHO. So what kind of, uh, you know, um, if a country does not uh, follow or does not uh, implement the FCTC, what would happen to it? The short answer is uh, there is no penalty, uh, you know, uh, so that no action will be taken. Uh, and and this, is, um, this was agreed to. Uh, you know, when the treaty was negotiated, that there will be no penalties. So it's very different in that sense from the WTO. If you don't follow WTO regulations, you'll get hauled up and challenged, uh, you know, uh, before their, their process. Uh, however, it's different for this particular treaty and many other treaties, uh, you know, that, that exist. However, the, the way to look at it is uh, because in the case of Malaysia, it's 27,000 deaths. And, you know, and, and many countries know the actual figure of people who are dying and, and those who are sick. And each country, when you look at the, uh, the cost of tobacco to society, the cost is always bigger. It is substantially bigger compared to uh, what is, you know, the so-called be uh, benefits from, from this industry. So just looking at the cost, uh, the, the countries, we hope, that the countries will be persuaded to do something uh, so that they can reduce the, the number of debts and also reduce the, the cost that the government spends uh, treating uh, mm -hmm. these diseases, which runs into billions of ringgit uh, in, in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. So I think it's left very much uh, to, the, to how the government views how quickly they want to, to implement the, the treaty. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the question is, which has the higher power of persuasion, mm -hmm. the public health argument or the industry, yes. right? So, so um, Dr. Mary, if we, we've kind of covered um, the highlights of where uh, Malaysia has problems and weaknesses uh, in terms of its interactions with the lobby, but where do you think... Um, the huge alarm bells are ringing the most for you or in terms of um, what we need to prioritise to um, reduce industry lobbying and interference? Uh, first of all, I think uh, it's really important that Malaysia has to set uh, some targets, you know, as to uh, at the end of this, uh, every at the end of every year, Malaysia should want to see by how many percent uh, we want to reduce uh, smoking prevalence or, you know, the, the rate of tobacco use. The industry has got targets that are weekly targets, monthly targets, quarterly targets, six-month, annual, 10-year targets. 
to increase the number of smokers. Yes. So we, we, we will, yes. So we will then have to ask our question, uh, we'll have to ask this question, what is our government's target? So it's not just uh, the Ministry of Health's responsibility. It's the whole of government that ratified the um, the FCTC because the the ratification signature is lodged in the New York uh, Treaty Office. So it's the whole government that ratified the treaty. Therefore, it's the responsibility of the whole government. So the Ministry of Health will have to look at what targets they have set uh, to reduce tobacco use monthly, quarterly, six month, annual. You know, every so it has got to be that specific. And by when uh, they they want to actually uh, stop the uh, to to reduce it down to single digits, you know. So there are countries that have got an what they call an end game uh, goal. Mm-hmm. So Malaysia will have to look at what is the end game. So we saw the generational end game, uh, you know, as an end game goal. Uh, mm-hmm. Some countries have set it. They they call tobacco free generation and bring the prevalence down to single digit, which is you know there's a number floating around, which is 5%, uh, you know, to bring it down. So countries like New Zealand, um, the Ireland, uh, you know, and many the Scandinavian countries, you know, uh, have got an end game goal to, to bring it up. Singapore, you know, our immediate uh, neighbours, to actually bring uh, the smoking prevalence down. So targets are really important. Number two, uh, the, the red flags for industry interference has been the non-health sector. So it's not the Ministry of Health that increases taxes, it's the Ministry of Finance. So the Ministry of Finance have got to look at what they want to do to implement the FCTC. Mm. So you know, it, it lies very much uh, in, in, uh, you know, in, in their purview because Article 6 of the FCTC, you know, which is on tax increase, and that's the direct responsibility of the uh, Ministry of Finance and also Customs uh, de- de- departments mm-hmm. uh, and and thirdly it will be to look at uh, how the in uh, the government views the, the tobacco industry so in uh, in countries that have uh, what you call it uh, targets very specific targets they view the industry as a problematic uh, industry it's legal yes no doubt mm-hmm. but it's an industry that sells a harmful product and that's not good business and it's not good governance so therefore, you know, governments have a political uh, will to actually uh, bring the uh, prevalence down. So the industry can can go ahead and, and function, but it becomes a highly regulated uh, industry. So in Australia, uh, for example, uh, it is highly regulated. The Australian government uh, implements Article 5.3. You know, tobacco is not grown in, in, in Australia. They're very strict no CSR um, activities in Australia, although th- there is no law, but there's no CSR activities. And there is 100% smoke-free public places, uh, which means you, you don't need enforcement officers. I hardly see any enforcement officers, you know, going around uh, asking people not to smoke because the public doesn't want, uh, you know, smoking in public places. So it, it's the public that actually then implements. Malaysia hasn't reached uh, that level yet. So basic things uh, have actually got to be demonstrated by the non-health uh, uh, divisions, uh, non-health sector of, of government to show that they are, uh, you know, serious about implementing uh, the mm-hmm. FCTs. Incidentally, Dr. Mary, what is our prevalence in Malaysia for smokers? 
for male prevalence, it's about 42 uh, percent, which is uh, really high. Compared and to 5 percent uh, target that most people are aiming for. So 5% target is uh, male plus uh, female is the, is, the, is the average. I think the average for Malaysia is about 22, 23%. I think you, you average out male smoking prevalence and female smoking is low. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but just because it's low, it is, I think, uh, 2 to 3%. This doesn't mean, therefore, that uh, female smoking is, is not a problem. Malaysia has got two issues that we really need to face, which is Highly important. Number mm-hmm. one, teenage uh, smoking, particularly teenage vaping. Uh, vaping has overtaken smoking. So there are more uh, teenagers, and I mean adolescents actually, between the ages of 13 to 15, there are more uh, adolescents vaping than smoking in Malaysia. Mm. Okay? That's number one. And and number two, uh, the prevalence uh uh, decline has been very slow. So, you know, 20 years uh, of, of doing tobacco control and if it's only dropped several points, that's uh, it, it means it's it's too slow. Mm. So, therefore, I think we need to uh, address uh, adolescent vaping, adolescent uh, smoking uh, seriously. And I think just banning them from smoking, I think, uh, or, or vaping is, uh, while it's important, it's not the end all. This uh, has to be supported uh, by by many other measures. So it's got to be a comprehensive uh, approach uh, if you want to protect young people. So that's why the the GEG component was so important, uh, and I I highly recommend that Malaysia needs to insert the um, nicotine back into the the Poison Act mm-hmm. because it's a poison. Dr. Mary, are you confident, though, that Malaysia can prioritise those areas that you recommended to halt industry interference, especially if we, you know, like you said, these things are subtle, they're insidious, um, it's been decades in the making as well, from smoking to now um, a very, very huge vaping industry? Um, I think that the uh, political will has, has got to be in place and it's got to be demonstrated I'm confident that the Ministry of Health is uh, 100% committed to, uh, you know, uh, addressing the uh, tobacco problem in Malaysia. They they have shown uh, the the will to 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 do this. So, but the Ministry of Health alone uh, can't get this job done. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, they first of all they need to show leadership, uh, and I think they 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 need to show that they are very serious and set targets. And then uh, proactively, uh, you know, engage the other uh, departments, as I've, as I've mentioned. So when the Ministry of Health actually uh, has a very public presence, you know, uh, of actually being serious uh, about this problem, then they will have to, uh, the, the other departments have to come on board. In other words, we will need to know what Malaysia will do this year, whether there will be a tax increase or again, are we not going to have a tax increase? And what else will Malaysia be doing to address the the tobacco and the vaping problem? In other words, the government has to demonstrate uh, what more can be done, not more of the same. So I think what has been happening is more of the same. And Mm -hmm. that's why, uh, you know, it it seems to be in a kind of a plateau type of situation. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I want to ask this question, like how many years has the index and the ranking has been published? And how is Malaysia declining to the final top bottom three yeah. spots? We don't have very far to go <laughs> to the right. bottom. Uh, how many, um, I mean, how many years has this been uh, in publication? And then what have we been doing to be in this uh, current situation? Um, well, the uh, the ASEAN Tobacco Industry Interference Index is started in 2015. And so we've had about eight or nine uh, publications just uh, around the ASEAN countries. The Asian Index, we started doing, uh, so this is the fourth uh, Asian Index, you know, we started doing in 2018. So um, if you look at where Malaysia is either at the ASEAN region or the Asian uh, level, it is still, I think there's plenty of room uh, for, for improvement. Uh, and I want to remain uh, optimistic to say that uh, Malaysia actually has good fundamentals mm -hmm. uh, and therefore uh, we, we need to uh, strengthen those uh, fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You know, the, the, before the Tobacco um, Act, we, we had the uh, Control of Tobacco Products Regulation of uh, 1994, which we built upon uh, quite uh, strongly. But we need to fast track uh, some of those measures. So um, pictorial warnings on cigarette pack, uh, there is no scientific evidence to show that, you know, 65% is, is, is the optimum size. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very odd, uh, you know, size. Malaysia should actually be putting in place standardized packaging. So I think in the regulations that are being de developed, we will need to look at how uh, the Tobacco Act can actually be strengthened so that Malaysia can fast track uh, and catch up, mm. you know, uh, with with uh, with time. Mm. Uh, so you know that, that's that, and then the implementation of a hundred percent smoke-free uh, uh, public places, and of course to reduce accessibility of um, what do you call it, tobacco and vaping products. Mm -hmm. So I just want to clarify: there is a big myth that is circulating in Malaysia and also in many other countries that vaping is ninety-five percent. Uh, safer than smoking. That's a myth and it's certainly not true. Mm -hmm. So there's no scientific evidence to, to support that. Actually, there are harmfulness. Uh, th there are many harms uh, with, with vaping as well. And we're beginning to see uh, those harms, you know, uh, uh, emerging uh, right now. Mm -hmm. So you can't substitute one addiction with another. It's not a solution. Yep. So, uh, and very briefly, Dr. Mary, uh, before we wrap up, do you have a final message? The final message uh, for Malaysia is that uh, there's room for improvement and I hope Malaysia will fast track uh, tobacco control measures because Malaysia knows what needs to be done uh, and I hope Malaysia will get there and Siatka is ready to uh, support Malaysia uh, you know, to the best of our ability and we, we want to wish Malaysia all the best for protecting uh, young people, children and to actually have a generation that is uh, truly tobacco free. George. Mm -hmm. If Malaysia carry on dropping two more spots, I think it's time to move to Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, this has been our Doctor in House segment. We were discussing the influence of the tobacco industry uh, and Malaysia faring very poorly in the fourth Asian tobacco industry interference index. Uh, we were speaking to Dr. Mary Asunta, Senior Policy Advisor from the Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance, and of course my co-host, Dr. George Lee as well. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast 
from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.